Thank you for joining us or welcome back to the Think Anesthesia podcast. I'm Amanda Shelby, RVT, VTS and Anesthesia and Analgesia and the Think Anesthesia content coordinator for Jerox Incorporated. In this episode, we have the distinct privilege to interview Darcy Palmer, LVT, VTS, Anesthesia and Analgesia. And in the world of veterinary anesthesia, Darcy is a household name. You may remember we interviewed her during the 2021 Veterinary Technician Appreciation Week, where we highlighted her and other veterinary technician leaders and their contributions and accomplishments to our profession. You can hear about the origins of her passion for veterinary medicine, how to be part of change, and what it means to be an instructor for veterinary students in episode 14. She currently serves as a veterinary technician with didactic and clinical instruction for veterinary students at Tuskegee University. She is the Executive Secretary for the Academy of Veterinary Technicians in Anesthesia and Analgesia, as well as the past chair for the CVTS, a subsidy of NAFTA that helps oversee the veterinary technician specialty groups. Today, she's going to share with us her expertise on challenging intubations. Darcy, welcome back. Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it. And I'm always happy to talk with you. Well, we are very privileged to have you join us. And I'm going to start right out of the gate with my hardest question. Okay. Have you ever lost or been witness to a patient lost because of either respiratory distress or basically the inability to intubate? Yes. Um, Unfortunately, I have been part. Now, this was not... I'm going to give you a a case example that I was involved with, which was um, very heartbreaking. It didn't necessarily have to do with a difficult intubation, but we lost the patient due to occlusion of the airway. We had a healthy feline castration that we had given an IM combination of drugs to. So we gave dexmedetomidine, butorphanol, and ketamine. And then that cat was left alone in the cage for those drugs to take effect. And the cat happened to be walking around when the ketamine hit and he was right in the corner of the cage. And so when the drugs hit, he kinked his head at a 90 degree angle and basically slid down the corner of the cage, effectively obstructing his airway. Nobody was there monitoring and watching him. He ended up going into respiratory distress and we unfortunately were not able to get him back because we didn't catch it quick enough. That was definitely a heartbreaking wake up call on our part. And it's one of the reasons why I'm such an advocate that when you are using an induction drug as part of an IM protocol, it is not a pre-med protocol. It is not a sedation protocol. It is an induction protocol. And so those drug combinations that include an induction drug should be ones where a person never leaves that patient's side from the time that the drugs are administered to the time that those drugs hit, that patient needs to be continuously monitored so that if a situation like that were to occur, you could intervene and stop it from going all the way to a full-on respiratory arrest situation. Yeah, that's really uh, sad. And I think we're all guilty of popping them I am and leaving them to cook. And maybe we should treat yeah. them with a boiling pot of pasta and that you have to continuously stir. So be exactly to monitor. Thank you for sharing that exactly. experience. That is heartbreaking for a healthy patient to be lost. Yes. In a completely preventable way. Just, just because we 
didn't think we needed to watch him, but that all changed. I have never left a patient alone since then. So it, I'm sad that the, a patient had to die for us to realize the importance of that, but I've become a huge proponent of making sure that same mistake is not made again. Yes, I appreciate you sharing that with us. So when you are preparing for either a challenging intubation or in general, any intubation, so any induction, whether it be intramuscularly or intravenous, what tools are absolutely necessary for you to feel confident that you're going to secure that airway? I would treat every intubation like it's going to be a potential difficult airway. And if you do that, even for an otherwise normal healthy patient, you are going to be prepared to intubate the vast majority of your patients. So most Typical airways or even a difficult airway can be managed by utilizing tools that should be available for every intubation. So first and foremost, I think the proper use of a laryngoscope is essential. Uh, it may seem like a very straightforward tool to use, but what I have found is that when I'm teaching intubation techniques to students for the first time, I see plenty of misuse, especially with how the blade is positioned on the tongue. So that laryngoscope can either be a big aid to help assist with intubation, or it can be a useless tool if you're not using it correctly. So understanding how to properly use the laryngoscope is by far the best tool that you will be able to use for any intubations. And then in addition to a laryngoscope, I think guide tubes should always be available to assist, especially when the view of the trachea opening might be obstructed for whatever reason. So the guide tube that I like to use the most is an eight French uh, polypropylene urinary catheter, but certainly there's other options for guide tubes available. You could consider a red rubber catheter, a pediatric stomach tube, or you could even use those bougies that are commonly used in human medicine. So even if it's a difficult or challenging airway that you might know that it's going to be, I always recommend trying to attempt normal oral intubation first. If you have a laryngoscope and a guide tube available, then there is a very high likelihood that you are going to have a successful intubation, even if it ends up being a difficult airway that you didn't plan for. And then, of course, if you're not able to be successful with normal oral intubation, then that is the time to consider going to a tracheotomy or you could also consider doing a cricothyroidotomy. So if you have those tools available, obviously for tracheostomy, you need a, a scalpel blade, but would you be able to initiate doing some of these alternative non-traditional intubation techniques, whether that be a retrograde intubation, nasotrach intubation, tracheostomy, could you start that process while you're calling for help? Yes, correct. So I, I'm a big proponent for always having a tracheotomy kit. Tracheotomies are much more commonly performed in veterinary medicine. The cricothyroidomies are actually something that human medicine prefers over a trach. You will see most human practitioners and EMS personnel trained to do a crike rather than a tracheotomy. But in veterinary medicine, the trach is much more common. And so in your induction area of your hospital, there should just be a little tray set up and sterilized for all of the equipment that you might need for a tracheotomy to 
to be performed in an emergency. And likewise, if your recovery area is a ways away from your induction area, then the same tools should be present for recovery as well. So if I've got a patient that is turning blue, I'm going to immediately switch to providing oxygen with a mask, get that patient flipped over in dorsal recumbency while I'm calling the team of people in. Right now, a DVM must be the one to perform a tracheotomy, but I can certainly get that patient completely prepped and ready to go so that all the doctor has to do is walk in, grab the scalpel and make the incision. That definitely expedites things in in your critical moments. If you know you have a challenging intubation, is there anything you can do to give yourself more time? Uh, Sure. So I think a a prime tool and something that is often just neglected is to simply pre-oxygenate your patient. Providing a face mask with or without the diaphragm around the muzzle of the patient is going to provide them with a higher concentration of oxygen than what room air provides, 21% oxygen. So we might not be able to achieve 100% oxygen with a face mask, but it's definitely going to be up there in the 80-90%. And if you allow them to breathe a higher concentration oxygen for at least three to five minutes prior to giving them induction drugs and proceeding with intubation, you can ward off clinical signs of hypoxemia for up to three to four minutes. So if you end up having a difficult intubation, you have more than doubled the time that you can attempt intubation without clinical signs of hypoxemia presenting compared to a patient that if you don't pre-oxygenate, you only have about a minute, a minute and a half before they start showing clinical signs of hypoxemia, meaning that bluish colored tongue that happens that nobody wants to see. So pre-oxygenation is a huge tool that should be performed on every patient, but certainly those patients that you consider higher risk for uh, difficult airway. So, you know, obviously the first thing that comes to mind are your brachycephalic breeds or any patient that you might think is going to have a difficult airway. So thinking of patients that might have a difficult airway or just unique anatomy, are there any particular species of patients that we might do in companion animal or exotic medicine that you have a particular concern securing an airway? Ah, rabbits. They are my nemesis. (laughs) Um, You know, I just don't get to do enough rabbits on a consistent enough basis to feel confident in being able to intubate them proficiently. So I, I I cringe whenever a rabbit comes into the hospital because I'm just not proficient enough to be able to do it with confidence like I am with dogs and cats. I am 100% with you, but (laughs) you have shared a trick with me that you have had some success. Would you mind sharing that with our audience in in reference to rabbit intubation? Yes, yes. So I learned this trick um, from Dr. Pablo. The V-gels are really easy to situate in a rabbit because they are designed specifically for rabbit anatomy. And so it's a superglottic device where the tube itself, the tip actually goes down the esophagus, but then the opening fits right over the trachea. And so you can very easily position a V-gel in a rabbit and then thread in a guide tube like that polypropylene urinary catheter. You might need to use a smaller French or a higher French than an eight because the rabbits are small. 
but you thread that guide tube through the V-gel into the trachea and then remove the V-gel and then thread your normal endotracheal tube over that guide tube situated in the trachea and then remove the guide tube. So the ability to intubate rabbits has greatly increased with that equipment if you have a V-gel available in your practice, which right now I do not. So I'm unable to use that technique, but I've seen it work multiple times and decrease the time to intubate a rabbit to less than a minute with that technique. That's phenomenal. And I have duplicated your explanation and had the privilege to work with Dr. Pablo as well. That is a very valuable technique for the rabbits that need oral tracheal education versus using the V-gel as a traditional purpose. So thank you for sharing that with our audience. Okay, Darcy, you used some big terms when we were talking about non-traditional intubation techniques. And could you just take a moment to break some of those down and give a little bit more descriptive characteristics to how you might accomplish some of those intubation techniques? Sure. There are some unique instances where, let's say we we can't open the patient's mouth very far. So things like a chronic untreated jaw fracture or a temporal mandibular joint disorder like the TMJ, or there's even an autoimmune disorder, which I think it's masticatory muscle myositis, if I'm saying that correctly. So all of those things prevent us from opening the mouth very far. And like in in a normal healthy patient, we should be able to open their jaw very wide for at least for cats and dogs. So if we can't open the mouth, our ability to view the lendral tracheal opening becomes very compromised. And so one of the things that you can attempt is a fiber optic guided intubation. And so you would need a small bore endoscope or ideally a bronchoscope that has a very small diameter, or you could consider retrograde intubation. So with fiber optic guided intubation, you're using a scope And depending on the patient's size, the endotrach tube lumen can fit over the scope. And then you can just basically use the scope as a guide tube. So you're going to place the scope in the oral cavity and you have the ability to view what you are doing on the screen. And you basically get the scope right down to the tracheal opening. And then you just thread the endotracheal tube off the scope itself. Now, if space is limited, you can thread the endotracheal tube next to the scope and you can get the scope situated at the tracheal opening and then just kind of maneuver the tube next to the scope to get it to go in. Or you could start with a guide tube and pass that down into the trachea first, then remove the scope and then thread your endotracheal tube over that guide tube. So those are all options to achieve intubation with the use of a scope. The big downside is do you have a scope small enough to accomplish intubation by this technique? So if you don't, you can try retrograde intubation. And this involves is inserting a large bore catheter or even a large gauge hypodermic needle into the trachea along the ventral aspect of the neck. So usually it's between the second and third tracheal rings. And then once you place that catheter into the trachea, you're going to take a guide wire, something similar to the guide wire that we use for the jugular catheters. You would then thread that guide wire 
through the catheter and hypodermic needle into the trachea and continue to thread it till it comes out the mouth. And then as soon as the wire is visible in the oral cavity, we usually have hemostats to grab the guide wire. And then you just use that guide wire as your guide tube. So then you thread the endotracheal tube over that guide wire, position it into the trachea, and then completely remove the guide wire. So this brings up a really good opportunity to talk about tools we have to confirm proper placement of an oral tracheal tube or any type of alternative uh, tube, whether that be through the oral tracheal opening or another. Is there any particular piece of monitoring equipment that you really rely on in some of these blind intubation techniques or non-routine intubation techniques? Absolutely. Hands down, it's the capnograph. When I am teaching students, I, I teach that immediately after intubation, that capnograph adapter is attached between the endotracheal tube and the breathing circuit so that we can detect the presence of a waveform while we are checking to see if the cuff of the endotracheal tube needs any air. So the presence of a waveform confirms the presence of CO2, which means that is 100% positive identification that we are in fact in the trachea. So by far, that is the number one method that I use. But there are several techniques that you can use. And so while I am checking to see if the endotracheal tube cuff needs air, I've also got my head pointed at or looking at the patient's chest. And so when I administer that first breath, I should see the chest move. And if I don't, then that automatically is tipping me off that we might be intubated in the esophagus instead of the trachea. So those two things in combination, but the first thing I look for is the presence of that capnogram waveform when a breath is delivered to that patient. Yeah, thank you. That's very valuable. I love the capnograph as well. Well, I'm going to finish up on one of our easiest questions. Do you have any particular species you just absolutely love to intubate? Ooh. That's an excellent question. I love intubating dogs and cats, but I, I have a special place for cats because I think that there's a lot of misinformation out there about cat intubation. We know that the trachea is very fragile of cats. All of the airway structures in a cat are very fragile. And so if you do not perform tracheal intubation properly, you can do more harm than good. But that does not mean that endotracheal intubation should not occur because establishing a patent airway is our best tool to be able to provide inhalant to the patient and provides a way for us to assist with ventilation should we need to. I think there's so much information out there. The one thing that comes to mind is a SEPSAF study that jumped to the conclusion that for short procedures, feline intubation actually increased mortality. Okay, but there's a lot of things with that study that it didn't even talk about. For instance, who was intubating these cats? Did they have a laryngoscope available? Was proper technique followed? Were they attempting to intubate these cats by themselves without the use of an assistant? So all of those things can definitely increase your risk of causing more harm than good if proper tools weren't available or proper procedure and technique were not followed. So to jump to that conclusion, I think has really done a disservice because feline intubation is actually very straightforward 
but it's all in the technique that is performed. And I still stand by the fact that endotracheal intubation of a cat far outweighs not doing it as long as proper technique is followed. I agree 100% with you. And I really appreciate you sharing this valuable information. To recap, my biggest takeaways were patent airway is very important, proper use of tools and having them readily available, monitoring patients after drug administration, especially in that intramuscular uh, realm with induction agents being used as common pre-med protocols. Yes. And having a little bit of understanding to switch over to some of these non-traditional intubation techniques quickly when your patients are struggling. So I appreciate you sharing those details with us today. Yes. Listeners, we appreciate your listening to our podcast and for subscribing to Think Anesthesia, our educational platform, where you can find various resources on subjects related to or closely related to veterinary anesthesia and analgesia. And of course, should you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, as always, please email us directly at thinkanesthesia at jerox.com. This was an interview with Darcy Palmer, and we really appreciate her time today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda.